So I'm not sure if you have counted recently, but we are officially 46 days away from Easter Sunday. And for us as Christians, Easter Sunday is significant. Along with everything else that that weekend entails, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and the day that we mark the resurrection, because as Christians, we believe that what took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is not simply important for us, uh, not simply an event that we find to have some special meaning, but we believe that the crucifixion of the Son of God, his death and resurrection, are events of cosmic and universal significance. We believe that these events are not just good news for us, but good news for the whole world. And we believe that the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. It's the axis upon which the world turns. And for all of our affirmations about these events and what they mean for the people made in God's image, it seems to me a little bit strange that we don't give much thought as we approach Easter Sunday. We don't do much in the way of preparation. We don't set aside time to reflect and ponder and to consider and examine ourselves as we approach this weekend that we believe remembers the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the cosmos. And I suppose some people might argue that, that really we're just remembering a one-time event. The, the crucifixion, the resurrection, these are once-for-all events, and so, so we don't need to necessarily approach the, the weekend reminder of them with any great care. And, and while I'm sympathetic to the point uh, trying to be made here, that we want to affirm the, the exclusivity of Christ's sacrifice once for all, I think that's good. Uh, the intention is noble, and yet I just consider the, the one-time events that we mark yearly by remembrance and the sort of care that we offer for those sort of things. Uh, so, for example, how many of us uh, heading into our birthday weekend, set aside money, we make travel plans, we spend time creating elaborate Facebook events so that all of our friends know where to go and what we'll be doing. We might even ask for time off of work. We, we take great care to prepare ourselves for the memory of an event that happened once. You, you were only born, physically at least, one time, and yet as we remember that event, we give ourselves to preparation. For those of us who are married or, or even just in some sort of a dating relationship, how, how often, as you've come to your anniversary weekend, have you set aside time and money and care to make sure that you are prepared to properly celebrate this event that has become a milestone in your life, the beginning of a relationship or the covenanting of a marriage? We give great time to prepare ourselves even for events that are a way for us to remember once for all events. And I think it ought to be the same with Easter. In fact, the early Christians recognized this. They recognized that it is uh, not helpful or wise for us to approach Easter thoughtlessly, given how significant we claim that this season actually is. And so from a very early period in church history, uh, the Christian church devoted time leading up to Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, uh, to prepare to examine uh, themselves, 
uh, to fast, to repent, to mourn their sin, and to meditate on the reality of what we're celebrating. So as early as 150 AD, you have people like Irenaeus uh, describing a three to four day fast leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. By the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, you have documents produced during that event discussing a 40-day fast that took place among the Christians in the area and regionally, preparing them for Easter. And then by the 5 and 600s, this 40-day fast had really been solidified, and it was something that was nearly universally practiced by Christians, the season of fasting and praying and examining and repenting as we move towards Easter Sunday. And that season came to be called Lent, which means spring, which is the season in which it takes place. And it's, it's that season on the church calendar that we as a ministry are going to be stepping into, this season of preparation so that this year as you approach Easter Sunday, that you wouldn't do so thoughtlessly. Uh, that you wouldn't do so without examining yourself, that you wouldn't do so without considering the weight of your sins and repenting and fasting and meditating on the earth-shattering reality of the cross. And God prepared the people of Israel for the incarnation of the Son in the form of the Scriptures. Uh, he gave them the writings of Moses and the law and the prophets, and the historical books and the Psalms and the Proverbs. And these were meant to shape the people of Israel and their imagination, their understanding of the God who had called Abraham to be the father of many nations. This was what was meant to prepare them for the work of Christ. And it was meant to prepare them so fully that after Jesus' resurrection, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus alongside two disciples who, who don't recognize him, he asks them why they're distressed, and they recount what's just happened to Jesus, and, and they think that someone's stolen the body. And Jesus, in his frustration, says, you foolish people, so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't you know that these things were to have happened? that the Messiah must suffer many things before coming into glory. And then we're told by Luke that Jesus walked these people through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and all the things in the Old Testament scriptures that were written concerning him. And so we as a ministry in this season of preparation are going to give our time on Thursday nights to the Old Testament, uh, to the scriptures that God gave the people of Israel to prepare them for the work of Christ. And so we'll be exclusively teaching out of the Old Testament starting next week in the book of Genesis. Uh, and just piece by piece, we'll be walking through Israel's story and the way that the scriptures are this a grand document that testifies to the work of Jesus. The other thing that we'll be doing as a ministry, along with Christians throughout the world, and along with Christians throughout the ages, is that, that we're going we're gonna to step into this season uh, with an appeal to fasting. Now, I realize that many of us in this room have a complicated history with Lent. And many of us have grown up in churches that, that are probably a bit more formal, uh, that take this season with a grave sense of seriousness, and you were expected to fast for Lent even if you didn't understand why you were fasting for Lent. Maybe it was commanded of you. Maybe it was demanded of you. 
And so, so in hearing that we're going to be celebrating Lent, you might feel a little bit of anxiety. And I just want you to know that I hear that. I'm sympathetic to that. And I want you to know that we as a ministry, we're practicing a distinctly Protestant form of Lent. There's no Ash Wednesday. Uh, there's no ashes. Uh, and I just want you to know that I'm not commanding that you fast. I'm not laying that expectation on you. Uh, no, instead, I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to join me in a season of fasting and repentance to prepare our hearts for Easter. Now, whether or not you fast for Lent, whether or not you choose to give something up during this season as you mourn your sin, uh, that's a decision that you need to reach uh, before the Lord. And that's not a decision I have the ability to bind your conscience to. But whether or not you fast in general is not really an option for you. Uh, fasting is a spiritual discipline, and it is an expectation that I think the Scripture places on Christians. It does not give us dates or appointed seasons for it. Uh, but in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as he is laying down the ethics of kingdom people, he, he makes this statement after teaching on prayer. He says, when you fast, do not do so as the hypocrites do. There is no if. There is no conditional statement there. Jesus' expectation is that citizens of his kingdom will fast. And so, tonight we're going to talk about fasting. And it was interesting, as I was getting ready to uh, prepare for this sermon, I was talking with the other guys in the office, uh, just going back and forth about how to teach fasting, what's the purpose of fasting, what's the heart behind this practice. And all of us agreed that fasting is something that Christians ought to do, but all of us also agreed we'd never heard anybody teach or preach on the discipline of fasting. And so here on the edge of Lent, on the edge of uh, this season that the church has historically given to fasting and repentance and meditating on the scriptures, I want to spend some time in the scriptures talking about why I believe that God calls his people to fast and how he uses this discipline for our good and for our holiness. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew. We'll be in chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. If I can give you a little bit of context as to what is taking place within this particular chapter, what's going on in the narrative of Matthew before we come to our text. So at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has just called the tax collector, Matthew, to be one of his disciples. And many of you know this, but some of you might not. And so it's, it's worth just taking a moment to explain that tax collectors are not well-liked in the ancient world. People don't look on them with any fondness, with any sort of endearment. They are despised by their fellow Jewish citizens because essentially they're collecting money to fund an invading and an occupying force. And so something of a modern equivalent to this would be uh, if Al-Qaeda, for example, were to invade the United States and somehow win, that, uh, somehow win that conflict, and then your neighbor Jeff next door was to decide, I'm going to go be a police officer for Al-Qaeda. Um, Jeff's not getting invited to the neighborhood barbecues anymore. Uh, people are not going to like Jeff anymore. Jeff is on the side of the enemy. Jeff is a traitor. Jeff has turned on his own countrymen. Uh, his own fellow citizens. And this is the way that tax collectors are viewed. Uh, they're often Jewish men who have decided to side with the enemy and raise money for their army. 
And so Jesus goes to Matthew, who is a tax collector and, and just an all-around unpleasant human being, by and large. And he calls Matthew out of this darkness. He calls Matthew out of this um, warped and, and wicked way of living. And he calls Matthew to be a disciple. But like most people who have sort of sketchy backgrounds and come to know Jesus, most of Matthew's friends are still sketchy. And so Matthew, in his excitement of the fact that he's been called to be a disciple, uh, throws what seems to be a feast in his home. He invites Jesus and, and Jesus' other disciples to, to gather, and he invites his friends, and his friends are all rough. They're described as tax collectors and sinners. And so as this feast is taking place, some of the Pharisees who were religious leaders in the day uh, take aside Jesus' disciples and they say, why is your master eating with these people? Why is your master eating with tax collectors and sinners? And we're told that Jesus overhears what they've said. And he responds to them in verse 12 that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And then he cites the scriptures towards them. He says that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the meal continues in Matthew's home, and we come to our text for the evening. Let me read it for us, and then we'll walk through it together. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so that both are preserved. So again, um, the scene in which we find ourselves is Jesus sitting at a dinner table. Uh, he's uh, sitting in the midst of a feast, if you will, and it's full of all sorts of unsavory and not well-liked people. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, why is it that you're eating with these people? And Jesus gives an answer. And then the disciples of John, this would have been Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, uh, they come to Jesus and they ask a different question. And, and I don't know this for sure, but it certainly reads like they're a little bit less malicious in their intentions. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, why are you eating with sinners? And the disciples of John asked Jesus, why are you eating at all? And this, this question is understandable in, in a Jewish context, because in Jesus's day, there was an understanding among devout Jews and sincere people that you were to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. As some of you are in my church history class, and so you've read the, the Didache, which is an early Christian document. And in it, it says, do not fast on the following days like the hypocrites do. Uh, and those were the days that the Jewish people devoted to fasting. Uh, but it wasn't a command of scripture. It was something that had been added onto the scriptures. It was a, an expectation above and beyond what God had levied levied towards his people in the law. And so the Pharisees are fasting, 
on Mondays and Thursdays, and the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. And so you might picture this town in which Matthew finds himself is uh, maybe even on a Thursday. So it's glum. People have sackcloth and ashes, and they're, uh, they're walking about making a big show of the fact that they're fasting. And yet somehow they hear in the distance uh, the clanging of silverware, and they hear laughter, and they hear uh, people eating and feasting and celebrating. And so they come to the house of Matthew, and they find Jesus there. And so John's disciples ask, Why, why is it that you all are not fasting like the rest of us? And Jesus responds in a, in a really interesting way. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He, he takes this picture of a wedding and he says, what sort of person sits at the table with the groom, uh, this grand celebration that a wedding is meant to be, and doesn't celebrate with him, doesn't feast with him, doesn't um, partake of the good gifts uh, that are presented in this wedding celebration. Now, in our modern day, you can probably think of a couple reasons why people might not eat at weddings. Uh, it's altogether possible that you're on some sort of a posh, fancy diet, and the carb loading that is offered to you in a wedding buffet uh, is, is not really going to fit with your diet plan. Uh, and you're hoping to have a wedding of yourself or a wedding of your own one day. And so uh, that's probably a bad idea. And so uh, some of us have gone to weddings and not eaten anything. But in Jesus's Jewish context, this wouldn't have made much sense. Uh, you're not dealing with people who are going on diets. You're dealing with people who are starving. And they're going to eat any chance that they get. Uh, they're going to they're take any opportunity, they, opportunity that they have to feast and to celebrate. Uh, but but there's more to it, because in a, in a Jewish wedding, uh, what, these events would typically last uh, up to seven days, up to a full week. Our weddings are a couple hours, maybe. Uh, but the Jewish wedding was this week-long feast where uh, food was plentiful, wine was overflowing, and the father and mother of the groom paid for everything. And so the picture that Jesus gives us is, is people sitting at the table with the bridegroom, whose parents have paid for everything, probably gone into debt to pay for everything. And everybody sitting at the table with him says, no, I'm good. I'm a pass. I'd rather not. This would have been a sign of, of tremendous disrespect. And Jesus takes this title of bridegroom for himself. And that's actually profoundly significant because the title bridegroom is a title that God uses of himself in the Old Testament. Jesus takes that title of bridegroom and he applies it to himself as if to say to the Pharisees, to the disciples of John, to the people of Israel, your Lord is here. The God to whom you have prayed, for whom you have longed, he is walking among you. This is not a time for fasting. This is a time for celebration. But yet Jesus doesn't leave the conversation at that. He goes on and he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, some people have taken this passage and they've tried to interpret it as uh, being a reference to the space between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. 
Uh, those are the days in which Jesus, the bridegroom, is taken away. He's taken away by death on the cross, and he's uh, restored to them in the resurrection. And uh, some have gone so far as to say the only time it would have been appropriate for Christians to fast was on the original space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Really, just the disciples are the only ones who should have ever fasted, and that's not for us any longer. But I don't think that's the best way to understand this passage. Because Jesus uses the title of bridegroom concerning himself only one other time in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's when he is talking about his return. It's when he is talking about his second coming. Then he, re- he regards himself once more as the bridegroom, as if to say that, that the point at which the bridegroom is taken away is not the crucifixion or uh, the space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The bridegroom is taken away in his ascending into heaven. And so, uh, practically, ground level for you and I, what this means as people who live between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is that we live in the days where the bridegroom is not bodily with us, and so we live in the days where it is appropriate to fast. So long as you and I can pray, come Lord Jesus, we live in the days in which we ought to fast as Christians. Jesus describes fasting as an act of mourning. In verse 15, he says, Can wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them? And then he talks about the day when he will be taken away. And he says, Then they will fast. So then, how is fasting an act of mourning? What is it about fasting that can rightly be described as mourning? Well, you can look at the way that the Old Testament addresses this topic, and I think it gives us some insight because in the Old Testament, fasting is largely a way to express humility and to express repentance. It's a way of lowering oneself and demonstrating sorrow for sin and and humbling oneself before the presence of God. Really, the only officially commanded fast by the Lord in the Old Testament is on the Day of Atonement. It's the day when the priest would make an offering for the sins of the people. And the the people were commanded to fast on that day to show the Lord that they were repentant for the sins being atoned for. Do you see fasting really throughout the Old Testament as well? In 1 Kings, Ahab, who's considered to be one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel, realizes that his sinfulness has brought judgment on the nation. And so we're told that he humbles himself before the Lord in fasting. And God spares his land. Or again, even outside of the nation of Israel, uh, we see in the book of Jonah that Nineveh is a wicked city, and Jonah is sent to this city to let them know that unless they repent, God is going to bring judgment against them. And eventually this, this, uh, this prophecy reaches the king of Nineveh and is an act of repentance to show that the people are turning from their sin. The king of Nineveh commands a fast from the greatest of the rulers all the way down to the animals in Nineveh. Everyone fasts as an act of repentance. Now, I've tried this with my cat before when I don't have enough money for cat food. Uh, and I tell him that it's not that I can't afford to buy you food. Uh, it's actually, it's a, it's a family fast. We're repenting of our sin, but he doesn't necessarily, um, he doesn't take too kindly to that. But yet we see again and again and again in the Old Testament that fasting is a way of mourning sin. 
It's a way for us to physically express, to uh, physically embody the emotional grief which comes from knowing that we are fallen creatures waiting to be restored to glory. Interestingly enough for me, and maybe for you as well, I find that, that pretty often my natural reaction to conviction is, is a form of fasting. Um, when, when I finally come to a deep conviction of my sin, whether somebody confronts me and tells me that I need to repent or whether the Spirit just uh, works in such a way that it lays, He lays hold of me uh, and grips me, normally um, whatever my dinner plans were tend to fall off the radar. Uh, I, I tend to, to lose my appetite in some sense. And fasting is taking that gut reaction to repentance and embodying it in a way that is tangible to say to God, I am mourning my sin in fasting. And yet, there's another way that I think fasting is mourning. Because I really do believe that fasting is also a declaration of our brokenness and our frailty. You know, uh, in getting ready for the sermon, I, I checked online, read a couple different articles, and it seems as though the average human being can only last about three weeks before they starve to death. And that's if you have uh, water and you stay hydrated. Some of us can live a little bit longer if you've packed on a little bit more reserves. Um, and some of us won't live quite as long if you're skinny. But generally speaking, all of us are only three weeks away from death. If you were to stop eating at this very moment, you have three weeks. Yet we live in the West where it's easy to forget that because the whole of our culture is almost orchestrated in such a way that, that we are forgetful of that reality. Most of us have never actually gone hungry. Most of us have never actually experienced starvation. And we do everything in our culture possible to convince ourselves that we will live forever. We don't even use the term death by and large when somebody dies. We use more cutesy and airbrushed terms like they've passed away, they've passed on. But make no mistake, you and I live in a Genesis 3 world, and death is only a, a sliver away from being your reality. And in fasting, you are reminded of the fact that you are dust, and to dust you will return. All of the passages that we read this evening, I don't know if you paid attention to them, they were actually all pretty morbid, pretty bleak. I don't know of, of, of many places where people gather on a Thursday night to be reminded of the fact that they're going to die. But all of these passages dealt with the fact that we are dust. And in fasting, we are reminded of how frail and broken we truly are in a Genesis 3 world that has been cursed by sin. It's an act of mourning. So, how is it that fasting prepares us for Easter? What, what is it about fasting that Christians have seen as being helpful as a way to approach the cross uh, with a greater reverence and greater understanding? Well, we've said that fasting is, is first and foremost a way to mourn our sin, and the cross is about God dealing with our sin. It's about Him dealing with our darkness. 
In fasting, we are able to remind ourselves of why the cross is necessary and why the gospel is, in fact, good news. I think Easter speaks to our frailty as well, which is another thing that we're reminded of in fasting. Because in the death and the resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, the triune God begins the process of putting death to death. The crucifixion and the resurrection tell us that God has not abandoned his world to the curse of Genesis 3 to death and to famine, but he has entered into it and he will bring it to restoration. In fasting, we are reminded of what is wrong with this world so that at Easter, we can be reminded that God has not left the darkness of our hearts and our world unanswered. But Jesus doesn't leave his teaching of fasting at that. He goes on, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Uh, now, I realize that some of us are, are beer and wine people, and so maybe this makes sense to you, but, but that's just not really my frame of reference. And so I didn't quite understand what Jesus was getting at when I first read this passage. So uh, let me kind of clarify that for those of us who don't quite get what's going on here. So in the ancient world, um, wine would have been stored in animal skins, uh, sort of leather pouches. And when wine ferments, it expands. New leather, new wine skins are um, elastic enough that they can expand with the wine. But the older a piece of leather gets, the older the wineskin, the less it can expand with wine. And so if you were to put new wine into old wineskins, wineskins that are all stretched out, uh, that don't have the ability to uh, grow and expand, when the wine expanded, it would burst the wineskins. And it would ruin both the container and the liquid contained. Uh, In the same way, Jesus uses this analogy of a patch sewn onto a garment. And this probably won't connect with any of you, but, but I grew up in, in hardcore punk rock and heavy metal. And so prime fashion accessory in all of these genres is having a, a jean vest with patches on it. Not because there's holes in the vest, but because patches look dope. And so I, I have this vest that I got years and years ago. I wore it a couple times, washed it a couple times, and then decided that I wanted to patch it up. And so I slapped a giant Dawn of the Dead movie patch on the back, and then I've got my Cannibal Corpse patches on the front, and my Entomb patches, and this means absolutely nothing to most of you, but I promise that it means something to me. But I patched the vest after I'd washed the vest multiple times. And so I've stopped washing the vest since I patched it, which is why I don't wear it to church or anywhere else, because it probably smells horrible. But my fear is that, that the vest has shrunk, but the patches haven't. And so if I actually put this vest in the washer and dryer, what's going to happen is that that the shrinking of the patches is going to tear the vest. This is the picture that Jesus gives us of wineskins bursting, of garments tearing. And I think he ends his discourse on fasting in this way to show that there is both continuity and discontinuity with the fasting the people of Israel have practiced and experienced and the sort of fasting that we as Christians will practice and experience. I think all of the Old Testament categories are still there. 
We're still dealing with wine and wineskins. We're still dealing with cloth and garments. But yet there is a fullness to fasting in the kingdom of God that the old categories cannot completely contain. Fasting as Christians is somehow different than it was before. I think John Piper offers a really helpful image to explain the difference in Christian fasting. So he describes in his book, A Hunger for God, the the period in his life between his engagement to his wife and when they were married. And they lived several hundred miles apart. John Piper, during this season of his life, was a swim instructor, which is a ludicrous mental image if you know what John Piper looks like. And so he worked as a swim instructor, and his wife lived uh, some distance away. And because John Piper's really old, there was no email. And so they would write letters to one another in this interim time. And, and he would describe that as soon as he received a letter from his wife, he would take his lunch break, and rather than eating lunch, he would walk out into a field near where he was teaching swim, and he would read the letter instead. Now, this wasn't a conscious decision. He wasn't saying, I'm going to fast lunch so that I can read my wife's letter. Uh, But instead, he was uh, so satisfied by the prospect of being near to his wife, even if only in letter form, that he was willing to forego other things that were good and helpful. And so in doing this, he's really declaring something about the supreme satisfaction and goodness and glory of being in his wife's presence. He's, he's essentially saying in this action that nearness to her is more valuable than all other things, that her presence is more sustaining than food. And as Christians, uh, at least spiritually speaking, we're, we're not... 20-somethings wondering who we are going to spend the rest of our life with. Now, I've realized romantically, some of us, including myself, are in that category. But spiritually speaking, we as Christians have found the one who satisfies, and it is Christ Jesus. We have found the one in whom we can take refuge should all other things pass away. And when we fast as Christians, we are declaring something about the goodness and satisfaction of Christ. Uh, We are voluntarily letting go of his good gifts like food or caffeine or, or any other thing you might choose to fast in this season. We are voluntarily letting go of good gifts to declare the supreme worth of the one who gives them. the Old Testament, the people of God fasted as sinners hoping for redemption. In the New Testament, we fast as redeemed people awaiting a consummation. And so in this time, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, when you forego food and comfort, all good and perfect gifts that God gives to his people, You are with your actions declaring that Jesus is supremely satisfying and that he is all we need to be sustained. Bernard of Clairvaux summarizes it well. We taste of thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. So. 
in this season of Lent. I want to not command you, but invite you into a season of repentance and fasting to declare your frailty, to mourn your sin, and ultimately in this act to declare that Jesus satisfies beyond the gifts that he gives in material things and that if all that we have is his presence, we have enough.